And let me, uh, I thought what I'd do is just sort of give you a history of where Mark Warner and I came from, and, um, but primarily throw it open to y'all. We'll talk about what you would like to talk about. Um, first of all, with respect to my relationship with Mark, it, it uh, actually started as soon as he got elected. Uh, Mark got his start in business in Atlanta. And as I tell him, he made all his money in Atlanta and he took it all to Virginia to spend. We wish he'd have kept more of it in Atlanta, but as a result of him beginning his uh, professional career in Atlanta, some of the friends that he made through those years are also good friends and supporters of mine. And so after Mark got elected in 2008, uh, a couple of those folks called me up and said, I think you really ought to get to know this guy because you'll, you'll, I think you'll find you'll have a lot in common with him. And so uh, we did meet early on. We became good friends. And from time to time, we sit around and we talk on the floor about just whatever. And one night um, during a, a vote, something strange, uh, a vote in the Senate, um, we're sitting on the floor. This was the summer of 2010, and we're just talking about the election. Neither one of us obviously are up uh, last November. But uh, we got to talking about the issue of the debt and the deficit and how everybody seemed to be focused on November of 2010, and nobody was focusing on this issue that obviously is the most important issue of our time right now. This was during all the uh, uh, statements made by various folks from the business world, the financial world, and uh, no less than Admiral Mullen who said that the number one national security interest is, is our debt. Um, so Mark and I said, you know, we don't know all the details of this issue the whys of how we got here or the way forward and might be a good idea if we just start bringing some folks in to educate ourselves and maybe we can expand from two to four which we did to eight to ten and we brought in any number of experts from around the country uh, folks like Bernanke, folks like uh, members of, of the um, um, Bowles Simpson Commission uh, economists, financial experts from around the country just to talk to members of the Senate about the issue and the consequences of doing nothing, the consequences of, of not doing enough, and really trying to develop uh, a process of educating members of the Senate about the seriousness of the problem. And our group grew, as I say, um, uh, from the two of us to ultimately at the last meeting we had, we had 31 members of the Senate there, 16 Republicans, 15 Democrats, and there were others who were part of our group that, um, that could not be there that day. Now, this doesn't mean there were that many people who were ready to raise, raise their right hand and, and charge the hill and sport whatever, but it does show that there was enough level of interest in that many members of the Senate about the issue and that they now understood how serious the issue was and were willing to dialogue about it. In fact, at that meeting that day, we decided to go to the floor and just have a colloquy or let folks get up and speak, whatever they wanted to do. Our problem was we didn't have enough time for everybody to go down and speak, and that's a good problem to have on an issue that's this serious. 
So we did. We had about an hour and 15 or 20 minutes that day, and we had to limit the number of people that could go down and limit their time. Obviously, it took a couple of three minutes. But it did show that, not show to the world, number one, that policymakers in Washington understand how serious this issue is. Secondly, that there is no silver bullet and there has to be a bipartisan solution to it. And we were willing to talk about it. There was nothing laid on the table that day during the course of the floor debate, uh, except that we did talk about the issue and say that we understood how serious it is and we look forward to working on it moving forward. At that same meeting that day, uh, which was after the Bowles Simpson Commission had, had issued their report. Mark and I endorsed that report pretty quickly after it came out. Uh, someone in that group said, look, if we have 31 members of the Senate sitting around a table trying to discuss this issue and figure out a way forward, we all know what's going to happen. But as we look here, Mark, you and Saxby have kind of uh, organized this effort today. Uh, we all think the Bowles Simpson Commission is the right direction to go, and you've got four guys here, two R's, two D's, and Coburn, Crapo, Durbin, and Conrad. Why don't the six of y'all get together and see if you can come up with some recommendation to us as to how we ought to address this and how we, how we move ahead. So thus was born the gang of six, um, and at a, uh, a presser, uh, gee, I don't know, a couple of days later maybe, uh, the press brought up this gang of six. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Gangs are groups of bad guys that wear do-rags and run around Atlanta, L.A., and New York and cause mischief. Uh, we are six members of the United States Senate who are understanding of how serious this problem is, and we are volunteering to try to figure out a way forward on it. Uh, thus began um, months and months and months, literally thousands of hours of, of discussions and negotiation when you include staff time. And um, um, we did ultimately conclude after a significant period of time that um, uh, the number $4 trillion is the absolute minimum number that if we're going to show the marketplace we're serious about getting this debt under control that you have to have in order to, um, uh, in order to show the seriousness of uh, trying to solve the problem. What are the consequences if you don't? Well, you know, uh, the way things are measured in the financial world is relative to GDP. Uh, for example, we know now that our spending relative to GDP is at 25 percent. That's an all-time high. We also know that our revenues relative to GDP is 14.5%. That's what's causing these trillion uh, dollar plus deficits that we've experienced the last three years. So we know we got to close that gap. But the, um, the, the number that's more significant to me than those two numbers is the 63% of GDP that we currently owe as a public debt. Now that does not include our, uh, our currently obligated Social Security and Medicare uh, debt down the road, does not include Obamacare. So if you include those, you talk about private debt, and who knows what that is. But 
The thing that's particularly interesting about that is twofold. Number one, I had a chart as I went around uh, trying to explain this to people in Georgia. I had this chart that shows the, um, the rise of that debt relative to GDP over the last several years, and it's quite stark. It goes along at a fairly slow pace for a while, and then over the last three years, it just goes up dramatically. And the projection from CBO, if we do nothing, shows that line going up even more dramatically over the next decade. And every economist will tell you that when that number relative to GDP hits 90%, that's the tipping point from which there is no point of return. That's where the Greece's, the Portugal's, the Spain's, and the Italy's are either at or headed to. So we've got to do something about this now. Um, we, uh, we did not intend that our proposal would come out at the, um, at the time of the, uh, the issue of the debt ceiling was reaching its pinnacle. Uh, it just kind of happened, and that was an interesting phenomenon. Some of you may have heard this, and I apologize for repeating, but it really was a, an interesting meeting that we had. <clears throat> As I said, we had these 31 folks who said, uh, you guys go lock yourselves in a room and forget your families for about a year and, and uh, come back and make a report to us. We decided that, because uh, we were getting a lot of pressure from folks about where are you, well, what's going to happen, and this happened to be the, the um, gee, I don't know, maybe two weeks in advance of the vote on the debt ceiling. Um, we convened a meeting of all those who had expressed interest, and we had 51 senators who showed up in the Capitol at 8 o'clock uh, on a Tuesday morning for us just to give them a report back on our behind-the-closed-doors negotiations and, and, and what we were going to recommend. And um, the, the makeup was about 50-50. I don't remember exactly, but it was about even. And as we started talking about what we had done and what we were going to, uh, what we are recommending, we had no idea that this should be something that all of a sudden developed a groundswell and got into the press. We actually intended to do a press conference maybe a week later when we fine-tuned our proposal a little bit. But the emotions in that room started running so high and it got so excited in there that people went outside that room ultimately and there was a press gaggle out there and all of a sudden we didn't have to do a press conference, it was out. Um, but I think still to this day the reason that there was such excitement, such emotion shown in there wasn't maybe 50% of it had to do with the fact that we had a proposal that people could get their arms around and they could support. But the other 50% had to do with the fact that, by golly, three Republicans and three Democrats could sit down in a realistic uh, way and come up with some resolution. We agreed on something. We agreed on the revenue side uh, that you had to put revenues on the table. They agreed on the entitlement side. You had to put Social Security and Medicare on the table. And Republicans and Democrats could agree. And, and it was truly amazing. And, and um, uh, when the six of us finally walked out, uh, there was nothing left to say. Everybody had already gone out and bragged on us and whatever. And uh, thank goodness they were able to make up some nice things to say. Um, but it was a, 
very interesting experience for all of us. Now, obviously, um, our proposal is still out there. We had a very good two and a half hour meeting with the super committee a couple of weeks ago. And I kind of kicked it off. And what I said was that, look, you guys have been given probably the biggest challenge of any group of uh, members of Congress during my 17 years here. Um, as you all know, the, the, the power of that committee is so unusual that they can do anything they want to do uh, and not have to go through regular order. Uh, in fact, we were talking about this last night. They can, in the Ag Committee, we're struggling to get together on writing a farm bill through that group. Um, and they've got the, the power to extend the time for us to write it or whatever. If we give them a number, that's about all they care about. So it's very unusual. But I said, here's your problem. You've got, you had 120 days to do this. Now they were down to like 30 days to do it or 40 days, whatever it was. And I said, we spent literally a year educating ourselves and talking with folks from around the country about the seriousness of the issue, how we got here, and what you really ought to think about going, uh, going ahead to find a solution. You got Bowles Simpson that did the same thing. You got Rivlin Domenici that did the same thing. We're not unique in that respect. And what you ought to do is take the work that we've done, take the research that we have done, and take advantage of it. And if you'll take advantage of it, it'll allow you to look at the issue and try to find a solution uh, in a way that, that will be the right direction in which to go. Uh, because you will have the benefit of hearing the same thing that we heard without having to go through the, uh, the year of research that we did. I don't know how they've digested that, or I do know that Simpson Bowles, Riven, and Domenici have testified before them too, but I certainly hope they did that, because if they did, I would have a lot more confidence in what may come out um, two weeks from tomorrow. Um, we are... Um, we're continuing to push ahead. Uh, again, as all of you know, we've got a statement of principle. It's not the sheets that we handed out that laid out our proposal, but is, it is a statement of principle that basically are five bullets. The last bullet, well, the first bullet says you, you need to get to $4 trillion. Uh, there's a bullet relative to uh, entitlements and revenues and what ought to be included. The last bullet, though, is probably the most important bullet. And that is that we think it's of critical importance that the American people be educated about the seriousness of this problem. Uh, I don't think people really get it yet as to what's going to happen if we don't do the right thing. Because remember, we were $14.5 trillion in debt. We raised that by, what, $2.5 trillion. Uh, that's up to 17 now, and even at $4 trillion over 10 years, we are barely going to cover the amount of debt that's been incurred in the last three years. So we're going to have to come back and do this again in two years, three years, or whatever. If you do $4 trillion, that means next time we come back and have to redo this, you're going to have to do less than what you would do if we do $1.2 trillion versus that four trillion or 2.1, whatever it comes out to be. Um, in any event, the next couple of weeks are going to be interesting and, and um, uh, 
the six guys on our side that are on there are all bright, smart. You all know them. Uh, they're very capable. And um, here's hoping they come up with a very good solution.